I needed a little bit of help going up the stairs. I said to my wife the other day, honey, I don't look 79, do I? She said, no, no, you don't, but you used to. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if all of you realize how fortunate you are to be in this church. Your missionary vision, I don't know of another church I've ever attended that has such a worldwide missionary vision that has so much history and so much faithfulness. And you know, in a day when evangelism is no longer considered important and people are into other issues, what a wonderful thing it is that you have this opportunity to attend a church that keeps focusing on the gospel with such clarity and conviction. And I have to tell you that if I lived closer uh, to your city, uh, your pastor Eric and I, we'd be hanging out an awful lot of times because he and I, as we connect, I mean, this man, you may not know this, but he is so well read. He keeps asking me, have you read this book? Have you read that? I don't even have time to read my own. <laughs> so what a wonderful opportunity it is to be here and to be in the pulpit where Pastor Wiersbe once spoke. Well, as the beginning, I do bring you greetings from the wonderful city of Chicago, the city of righteousness, love, truth, and justice. <laughs> Eric, did you have this cold snap that we had in Chicago about two weeks ago? It was bitterly cold. It was so cold that according to the media, and if it's in the media, you know that it's true. <laughs> it was so cold that some members of our Chicago City Council were actually seen with their hands in their own pockets. <laughs> I'll tell you, it was cold in Chicago. What a delight it is to be here and be here tonight. Now, even though, Eric, you were speaking to the people there directly into the camera, they're listening right now, aren't they? They're picking it up, and you, tonight, be here. I mean, you say, well, I have other plans. No, change them. Reject that thought. You say, well, we're meeting with people. Bring them. We have room here, and if not, if worst comes to worst, watch online, which is all totally legitimate and right, and we're so thankful for technology when it works. And so we greet all of you. But be back tonight. If you're listening in your families at home, join others. Because we're going to talk about suffering for the cause of Christ. And I've kind of entitled it, I reworked the message just for you this morning. It's going to be entitled something like, Toward a Philosophy of Suffering for Jesus in a Woke Generation. Some of you older people don't know the meaning of the word woke. Well... You have to get woke. And by the way, the people who are in Germany, you know, my parents were Germans, but they came to Canada, and uh, they, they were in the Ukraine, and so they spoke German at home, so I know a little bit of German, too. German, by the way, is the only language in which you can say, I love you, and it sounds like a threat. <laughs> ich liebe dich. Really? You want to settle that out in the hall? God bless you. What a marvelous, what a marvelous topic 
a pandemic of hope. And that's what we're going to talk about. All of us know about the pandemic, how bad it has been, and how social distancing, that's one of the reasons I will not necessarily connect with you very closely because of social distancing. And after all, I am of age to, uh, well, you know what they say about people who are almost 80 years old. By the way, I wrote a book entitled Pandemics, Plagues, and Natural Disasters, and I want to throw in just one little point that I make. If COVID-19 is out of God's hands, then we are out of God's hands, because any one of us could get it and we could die of the disease. As the saying goes, Jesus and COVID are everywhere. And so what we need to do is to recognize that while there's a human element and we commit ourselves to social distancing and masks, which one doctor described as putting up a chain link fence to keep out mosquitoes. <laughs> While we commit ourselves to this, at the same time, we recognize that ultimately we are in God's hands. And we need to keep that in mind. And I, I give that to you as a word of encouragement. Unleashing a pandemic of hope. In order for us to get to this, we have to ask ourselves the question, how big is your world? How big is your world? Now, if you're a narcissist, your world is you. Some of you perhaps are married to narcissists. A narcissist always asks two questions, consciously or unconsciously, namely, how do I look and how do I feel? They have huge mood swings in order to control those around them because they have to be the bride at every wedding, the corpse at every funeral, and the baby at every christening. Their world is their world, and that's as far as they get with very little compassion and concern. I hope that you're beyond that. I hope that you at least have compassion and concern and interest in the life of your family in the life of your friends and in your immediate surroundings. But Jesus has asked us to have a heart for the world, and that was so beautifully demonstrated here today that I felt that it was worth flying all the way from Chicago to here yesterday just to be able to see this procession of flags and to see your heart for missions because God's heart is worldwide. Now what we're going to do is we're going to turn to the ninth chapter the ninth chapter of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, and I want you to follow along with me. And I looked at your bulletin. I noticed that it has my outline, and that's fine. Not a great deal of place to write, but I want to make sure that you save a little place because at the end of this message, I'm giving you an assignment. I mean, there's no use talking about, you know, unleashing a pandemic of hope and just going back and having the same week next week as you had this week. So you're getting an assignment, and I want you to write down exactly what you're supposed to do, and you're accountable next week for having done it. That's the agenda. Jesus here enables us to enlarge our world, because I need to tell you that while the pandemic is horrible, COVID-19, there is a pandemic throughout the world that is far, less, far worse, and that is the pandemic of sin. As a matter of fact, sin is far worse because, number one, it affects everybody. In COVID, maybe one or two percent die. 
But this leads to the eternal death of everyone who does not receive the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to do in the midst of this generation. And I really believe that we are more prepared than we realize because Jesus has put his bride into a situation in which we need to respond and be what we should be. Now, with your Bibles open, and I know that some of you are watching on your phone and you're watching on your air hammer and your iPod and all those other things. I get that, okay, and that's fine. But for the younger generation especially, would you look up here for just a moment, for just a moment, this actually is a Bible, all right? This is a Bible. Do I have a witness? You have a witness? All right. The ninth chapter of the book of, of, uh, of Matthew, Jesus enables us to enlarge our world and then to unleash that pandemic of hope that we are talking about. How do we enlarge our world? First of all, Jesus enlarged his world by what he saw. I'm actually there in verse 36, when he saw the crowds. My friend today, what you and I see is dependent on what we love. It depends on who we are and what our interests are. It's been my privilege to lead tours to the sites of the Reformation in Europe, and so I've added quite a bit of experience with tourists. And, you know, there are women who sometimes come who are interested in gardens, and we're driving by in a bus, and they're pointing out these beautiful gardens. I don't see them, but they do. Or somebody who's interested in architecture, and he's looking at this particular beam and this particular arch and saying, this is the Greek arch, or this is the Roman arch. And I'm saying, you know, I'm just not in that world. But what you are determines what you see, and what you see is determined by what you love. Remember that poem that we learned back in school? I attended a grade school in Canada, and I think we learned it there. Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to see the queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what saw you there? I saw a mouse sitting under her chair. I can imagine that when pussycat got back to America and she was with her human friends, she said, let me show you my slides of my trip to London. And, uh, you know, the people said, what was the queen wearing? I have no idea. Didn't you see the pictures on the wall? I have no idea. All that I saw was a mouse sitting under her chair. Why? Because he had a pussycat heart. Who you are determines what you see. And if you and I are self-absorbed, if we're taken up by our own little world, we can pass needs very, very easily and not give them a second thought. And the reason is because we are so into ourselves, we don't really see with the eyes of Christ and we don't see the needs around us. Oftentimes, people are not throwing out all kinds of signals regarding their needs. And you and I, if we were perceptive, would pick up where they are at and we would see the brokenness of the world. You know, just a few verses before this, it says, and they were going away. There was a demon-oppressed man 
But notice the passage of scripture I just read. It says, when he saw the crowds, they were harassed and helpless. We'll get to that in a moment. But my point is simply this, that you and I need to learn how to see. And we need to see that our world is broken. You know, Bonhoeffer asked the question, who is Jesus Christ for you? For him, it was the Jews. But who is Jesus Christ for you? Who do you see? The single mother? I so much uh, was uh, sympathetic towards single, single mothers at Moody Church. They would tell me they come home and they have no adult conversation. They have to make all the decisions alone. Is she Jesus Christ for you? What about the biracial child? Is he Jesus Christ for you? What about the poor, the marginalized that we might despise? Are they Jesus Christ to you? Jesus said, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. I'm going to throw this in at no extra cost. You know, at Christmas... I remember when I was younger, I used to preach about the innkeeper at Bethlehem. That innkeeper has been so vilified. And you know what the funny thing is? There is no mention of an innkeeper. And yet he's been vilified all this time. If I were there, I'd have allowed Mary and Jesus into the inn. You have an opportunity to invite Mary and Jesus into the inn. Jesus said, if you do it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. We can invite Christ into our homes if we have eyes to see. How do we unleash a pandemic of hope? By what we see. Notice also by what we feel. Jesus, the Bible says, and I already read it to you, he saw the crowds and had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you have compassion for our young people today being born and raised in single-parent families? You know, I think that one of the greatest tragedies in America, there are about 30 or 40 million kids tonight who are going to go to bed with only one parent in the home. With all of the abuse and all of the hurt and the brokenness and the demonization, do you and I actually feel that, or have we so isolated ourselves? We've so put ourselves into a bubble that all that really matters is our happiness, our success, and we don't see like Jesus saw, and we don't feel like Jesus felt. So what you and I must do is to repent, and we must say, God, I have to begin to feel. I have to begin of to repent of my judgmentalism. I need to be sure that I am willing and extending myself on behalf of those who tonight and today are in great pain. And some of those might be close around us, but if we don't have eyes to see and if we don't feel, we'll miss the opportunity. I think, for example, of the story of the Good Samaritan. The good Samaritan is going along. He sees this wounded man, and he saw somebody to help. Remember that the parable was told in answer to the question of who is my neighbor. And Jesus used a Samaritan because the Samaritans were despised. They, of course, were of mixed race, as you well know. 
But he's going along. He doesn't say to the wounded man, now, why did this happen? Why were you out so late? Why didn't you bring any guards with you? Are you here legally or illegally? And what race do you belong to? No, he saw somebody to help, and he helped him. And you know what the Bible says? He had compassion on the man. Have you and I come to the place in our lives where we see only our own world and we don't have compassion? I know a ministry that I'm close to because a relative is involved in it where you have Syrian refugees. This man ministers to them. He connects with certain people. I won't go into detail regarding getting vegetables for them. He's invited into their homes. He's befriended them. They're even asking him now to pray in the name of Jesus in their homes because he has seen and he has compassion. Just two days ago, I received a text from him at a picture of some students from Syria and from Iran, and one of them said, now that we've met you and your wife, we don't feel lonely anymore. Do you realize what people are going through today? Do you take out time to feel their pain, their brokenness, and their hurt? A third way is how we pray. It's how we pray. Now notice what uh, Jesus said. The harvest is plenteous. This is about verse 37 or so. Because of COVID, I haven't had my eyes checked for a couple of years. Uh, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plenty of plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. You say, if God wants to save the world, why does he need our prayers? Well, as you know, in the scriptures, there's a juxtaposition between the will of God and the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And what God is saying is, what Jesus is saying is, is that we are really co-laborers. As a matter of fact, I think I picked up on that word during the wonderful video that was shown introducing the missions conference, that we are indeed co-laborers. So God says, what I want you to do is to pray that there might be laborers who enter into the harvest. The imagery there is that there is a greater harvest than there are laborers to do the work. Now, I was born on a farm in Canada, in Saskatchewan, Canada. I always say it was so flat out there that you could stand on a can of shoe polish and look halfway into next week. That was my origin. But I do know this, that we seeded and we cultivated the land, but there was nothing quite as exciting as the harvest. And when we would have the harvest, oftentimes my father would actually hire additional help. Why? Because of the excitement of the harvest. And Jesus said, you know, there's a bigger harvest out there, and sometimes we lost fields because of rain, because of hail, or because the harvest was not brought in on time. And what Jesus is saying is, the harvest is way out there. The laborers are few. So what you need to do is to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers into his harvest field. That's what my translation says to send forth labors. That's actually a very weak translation. Do you know what the Greek word says? It is really a compound of two words. 
One of the words is ek, from which we get exit, which means out of, and then balo, which means to throw. To throw out, cast out. As a matter of fact, it's the same word that is used when Jesus cast out demons. He ekbaloed them. Jesus is saying, and a good translation would be, uh, pray that the Lord of the harvest will thrust, thrust forth labors into his harvest field. And so what you and I need to do is to recognize that even as we pray that, we sometimes become the very people whom God thrusts forth, and he is Lord of the harvest. Now, you saw in your video today, and by the way, I was so impressed, I have to emphasize again, by the number of missionaries that this church supports I suggest that you be 100% committed to the mission of this church, to its missionaries, to its ministries, because I need to emphasize again, your church is unique. So appreciate it and become involved. But I need to say that uh, we say to ourselves, well, you know, I can't be involved in the whole world. You actually can be. With all the nations that you saw here and the missionaries that are from this church. Why don't you select one country? Why don't you select Angola and say, I am going to be praying for these missionaries because through prayer, we can actually transcend the United States of America. We can go to every single country of the world. We can find out what those needs are. We can invest our lives so that at the end of the day, we will not have lived in vain. We'll, we'll have done all that we possibly can for more mouths to give glory to God, which is really what it's all about. And so you do that. And by the way, while I'm on the topic regarding money, you know what Jesus said in a parable? He says, invest your funds in such a way that there will be people who will meet you on the other side and welcome you into everlasting habitations. When you invest in ministry, your money actually is going to meet you on the other side. This is a whole separate topic. I'm not going to get into it, but I always preach a message on the curse of believing you can't take it with you. And I'll throw that in right now. Of course you can take it with you, but you have to transmute it into a form that will meet you on the other side. I love that lady out there saying amen. I don't know about you, Pastor Eric, but two people saying amen is really wonderful and very motivating. And I think I actually heard two, so thank you. So what we have to do is to say we can travel around the world. When you invest in ministry and your missionaries, you are going around the world. And through prayer, we can penetrate any country, even so-called closed countries. We can win victories over here through prayer that are appreciated and lived out over there in some other country. So how do we develop this pandemic of hope? Well... It's how we pray. I dare you to pray that the Lord will send out laborers into his harvest field because you know what he's going to do. He's going to choose you to do it. The fourth way is where we go. Now, this is, of course, in chapter 10. 
It says in verse 5, these 12, Jesus, 12, uh, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter into the town of Samaria. But enter into, my, I'm misreading this. Go nowhere among the Gentiles or enter into the town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the house of Israel. Now, that does not apply to us because this was the era in which Jesus was offering himself to the Jews. And so he was saying, go to the Jews first. That all changed very rapidly, though, because after Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, he, of course, asked us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But the point is, we do need feet to go, and the Bible says how beautiful are the feet of those who go and preach the gospel. I am going to ask you to turn to the end of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, because I want to show you something in this great commission that relates to what we're talking about today. There are four universals in the Great Commission. Four universals. And how blessed is it, it is for me to see people with Bibles going to Matthew chapter 28. It's page 835 if you have a translation like mine. Some of you might be reading from the reversed vision, but mine says this. All right. You'll notice in verses 18 and 19, first of all, all authority is given unto me. I love that. When you begin to witness and when you share your faith, you're not on your own. It is God who converts people. Parents, you can't convert your child. You've tried. It hasn't worked. How's that working for you? Only God can convert people. He is the one who has all authority on, in heaven and on earth. Does that mean even authority over people? Yeah, that means authority over people. And that means you should never think to yourself, this person over here could never accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Their hearts are too hard. You never know the miracle that God might do because Jesus says all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. So you never witness alone. You don't go to Germany or Angola or some other country in this world alone. Jesus is there, and he has all authority. I want you to see him exalted today. All authority, that's the first universal. Go to all nations. We've already emphasized that, but notice that's the second universal. And teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And those all things include the words of Jesus. Of course, they also include the words of the Apostle Paul. And what Jesus is saying is that the gospel is to be worldwide. Now, back in 1963, excuse me, 1993, I attended the Parliament of World Religions in Chicago. 5,000 delegates met from all over the world representing all of the religions of the world. And um, they met in the Palmer House, and I was there every day for a week, hobnobbing with the New Agers, hobnobbing with, you know, the people, the Buddhists, the Spiritists, and all this. I mean, it was, it was wild. I was giving people the gospel. But I, I went to the place where all the propaganda was laid out, I think it was in the basement uh, area of the Palmer House, because I said, you know, I'm a sinner, and I'm looking for a sinless Savior. Because I know that a sinner can't save me, 
I, I, I need it. So I went to the Buddhists and I said, uh, do you have a sinless savior? Because I need to be safe from my sin. No, Buddha claimed enlightenment, but we don't have anyone who is sinless. I went to the Hindus. They said the same thing. I went to the Muslims. I said, now did Muhammad claim sinlessness and is he a savior that can save us from our sins? No, I already knew that in the Quran he asked for forgiveness and, told, and said that he needed forgiveness several times. No, and you know what I discovered? There is nobody out there like Jesus. There's nobody out there. We're going to get more people saying amen if we keep this up. There's nobody out there like Jesus. There's nobody like him because he's the only one who has the qualifications to save people. Gurus and prophets take this path, go that path. But what they can't, you know what all the religions of the world are? We're going under and let's join hands and go to the bottom of the lake holding hands and singing Kumbaya. Jesus is the only one who can scoop us up, present us to God as absolutely perfect, clothed in his righteousness, accepted by God and the basis of his work and be as accepted by God as he is. Fact. When the Bible says we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, what that actually means is that whatever belongs to Jesus is going to belong to us. I mean, this is mind-boggling. So he says, teach them all the things I've told you. That's the third universal in this passage. And then he goes on to say, and behold, I am with you always, always, even unto the end of the earth. All right. So you're going to begin a pandemic of hope. Well, I'm going to tell you exactly what you should do this week, and you'll be accountable, and later on I'll tell you who you're accountable to. This week, I want you to pray that God will lead you to two people, and this is the question I want you to ask them. When you begin a spiritual conversation, don't say, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. You know, it goes back in my pedigree 200 years, and I attend church uh, uh, every Easter. Don't ask them if they're saved. Saved from what? Find out where they are at, and I'm going to ask you to write down this question now, young man over there, because I'm going to, because you're accountable for saying this. He's not smiling. I could be in trouble. <laughs> ask them this. I've done it dozens of times, probably hundreds. Tell me, where are you on your spiritual journey? Where are you on your spiritual journey? Everybody's on some kind of a spiritual journey. Maybe they're an atheist. Maybe they're into this or they're into that or they were brought up in the church and they stopped going and, and they had all of these things. But everybody has some kind of a spiritual journey. Well, you know, I'm not into religion, but I'm into spirituality, etc. Then ask them some other questions. How is it working for you? Do you how do you deal with sin in your life? That's a good question that you can ask. Um, how do you deal? You say, well, you know, I haven't sinned. Oh, really? Ask your wife, and we'll see whether or not she verifies that. So what you do is you ask questions. Just ask questions. And what you'll discover pretty soon is 
they don't really have an answer. Ask them what is most special to them, what their goal in life is, and God will give you an opportunity to say, I'd like to tell you the truth that has worked for me. All right, that's number one. Or you can use this too, and this will never fail. You'll always have a spiritual conversation if you use this second question that you can write down. The second question is this. It's not really a question, it's a little long, so I'm going to repeat it so that you can write it down. It goes like this. Would you mind if I were to share with you what somebody once shared with me that changed my life? I've never had a single person say no. If somebody said that to you, wouldn't you want to hear what it is that somebody once told him that changed his life? So you say, let me share with you something that somebody once shared with me that changed my life. And then basically give them your testimony. You see, you have to know how to begin a spiritual conversation if you're going to begin this pandemic of hope in this community uh, you know, you're going to have to start to witness for people, to, to people. And you always have to ultimately bring them to Jesus. I love to tell this story because back before the days of uh, COVID, I used to witness to everybody on the plane. I would say 90% of the time I would use these questions and witness. And uh, one day I was talking to a man and he said, well, you know what I think? I think as long as you do the best you can, You'll have no problem. You'll get to heaven. I said, you know, I write books. I'm on the radio. If what you're saying is true, we have to get that out to the masses. But I said, first of all, I have to ask this question. How do you know that it's true? Well, it's just my opinion. I said, your opinion. You get 10 people together and you get 12 opinions. I said, your opinion. I said, I thought that you were going to tell me you had a revelation from God. How could anyone know whether or not you'll be acceptable to God unless God revealed himself? I mean, your opinion. He said, well, why is your opinion better than my opinion? I said, it's not. We're all like ants on a Rembrandt painting, noticing the roughness of the canvas and the change of color, but we don't see the whole picture. You know what we need? We need somebody to adjudicate this. We need somebody to speak with authority about these matters who actually has credibility. And you know what? There is somebody like that. His name is Jesus. So let's find out what Jesus said because he can adjudicate our opinions. So what you always want to do is to ultimately Get them back to Jesus because it's all about him. Now, I want you to do that. I want you to pray that the Lord of the harvest will lead you to two people and he will expollo you, cast you out, <laughs> send you out. Pray that and God will answer. And next week you're accountable. You say, well, are you going to be accountable to me? No, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be back in Chicago if God wills it and if the plane flies tomorrow. 
I'm not going to be here. You say, well, are we accountable to Pastor Eric? Listen, Pastor Eric's got a dozen things to do. Sure, you can tell him, but you know, you're not accountable to him. Who are you accountable to? God. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have laughed, I guess. I thought that was kind of funny, but apparently the rest of you didn't. But I'm serious. You're going to begin and unleash a pandemic of hope? How in the world is that going to happen unless you share your faith and give people an opportunity to hear your word and your testimony so that you might come to faith in Christ, so that they might come to faith in Christ? Folks, we're living at a critical time of history, and we'll talk about that tonight. But I want you to know that God has called you to this hour, to this moment, for one reason, to represent him in a world that has lost its way. And if you are shamed into silence, if you never talk to people about their eternal destiny, how in the world are we going to unleash a pandemic of hope? The world is full of hopelessness. And you have a message that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord who forgives sins and transforms lives. And I trust that you will pray the Lord of the harvest to send you into the harvest. It might be your backdoor neighbor, it might be a co-worker. Wherever it is, represent Jesus. Our Father, we want to thank you today for the fact that you have called us to this hour I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for Pastor Eric. I thank you, Father, for its missionary vision. Thank you for the missionaries that we heard about and that we saw and for the flags that represent the nations. And thank you that someday people from every tribe and tongue and nation are going to be before the throne. Help all of us to know what we should do to bring that about and Lord, it is a big prayer, but I pray that from this church there might be a pandemic of hope in a day of despair. In Jesus' name.